Welcome to Leading Lights. You're about to hear a message from Lighthouse Church. Hello there. So we're talking about becoming a complete Christian in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 all the way through to 11. Peter gives us a roadmap of how to become a complete Christian. He starts off in the first couple of verses talking about what God has provided, what God has already given us. He says that God has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness, that God has given us his promises, that God has given us the ability to partake of his divine nature. It's what God has provided, what God has already done, a free gift that is put inside of you, Christian, when you see Jesus dying for you on the cross, you say, thank you, Lord. I receive it. I accept it. Then you have part of God inside of you. The divine nature is part of you. You have everything you need for life and godliness. It's the most amazing little passage about what God has provided. Then the next few verses from verse 5 onwards are talking about the progress. And he says, because of this, because God has been so gracious and kind and generous, add diligence. Let me read it to you. He says, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. So he gives us seven rungs. So the first small section was God's provision. The second section is our progress. He says you've got to add something to this grace and this faith that you already have. Add these things. Add one after the other. To faith, add virtue. To virtue, add knowledge. And he goes all the way through And at the end of the seventh rung, the seventh uh, virtue, the seventh great thing that we should be adding to our faith, he then says, For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness, has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the first part is the provision of God. The second part is the progress we make. And the third part is the product, the end result, which is fruitfulness and an abundant entrance into the kingdom of God. The fact that we don't stumble, that we are complete and successful and effective Christians. So we've gone through a few of them already, and I want to talk about self-control today. Self-control. And I think this may surprise you for several reasons. Number one is because some Christians think that we are not supposed to control ourselves. Some people think when I become a Christian, I must give up control to God or to other people. I must be a passive doormat. I must allow people to bash me around and I must just be led um, by other people or be led 
by the Holy Spirit so that it's not my decisions anymore. It's the Holy Spirit says, do this, and I just blindly do it without any involvement of my own deciding ability. So some people think that self-control should not be part of this list. No, God must control me or circumstances must control me. Maybe they say, well, God is in control of everything. So therefore, if God wants it to happen, a door will open, a job will come up, uh, uh, an opportunity or something or circumstances will push me along. And they don't think they must control themselves. They think they must be controlled by other things. The second surprising thing about this word self-control is that some people have linked it to salvation by works. And so sometimes we think as believers, we've been taught, if you've been listening to the sermons in this series for the last few weeks, you will have heard again and again and again, we are not saved by our good works. We cannot earn salvation. We cannot earn heaven. It's a free gift. It's a free gift. And so some people think, well, therefore, I mustn't be self-controlled because that's a work of my own strength and my own ability. That's me trying to be good enough and trying to earn something from God. And so these are two errors that cause us as Christians, cause you and cause me to discount this word self-control. We think self-control can't apply to me because God is in control, not me, or because we think that it means I'm relying on my own strength and I should only be relying on the Holy Spirit's strength. And so because we ignore self-control, we become Christians who have the provision of God. God has put everything that pertains to life and godliness. He's put his divine nature. He's given us his great and precious promises. It's all in there, all the power, everything we need to serve God. But we don't enjoy it. We don't see the product of a fruitful Christian life, of a, a life that doesn't stumble, of a, an abundant entrance into the kingdom of heaven. We don't see that because... We have not added self-control. Wow, Greg, this sounds quite serious. It is serious, my dear friends. If you don't have self-control, you will lack as a Christian. You will not be complete as a Christian. You could have all the benefits and blessings of God inside of you, but it doesn't work itself out into your emotions, into your life, into your relationships, into every other part of your life. And you are an incomplete Christian or a defeated Christian or a weak Christian or a blown around Christian who never gets to where God wants you to be. And so I want to look at this topic, this idea of self-control today. Another way of thinking about self-control is to use the word willpower. And I want to just describe this to you in a few minutes here. Willpower is the ability to decide. You know, the human will is an extraordinary thing. Have you ever seen in a movie where a man or a woman is being tortured to give up some information and it doesn't matter how much pain they are put through, how much psychological torture or trauma they are subjected to, they still 
use their willpower to say, I will not give in. I will not tell you the information. The human will is one of the most powerful things in the universe. You say, Greg, is that really true? Yes, it is. The human will is so powerful because God himself, when he created humans, when he created man and woman in the Garden of Eden, he gave them the ability to freely choose not to eat from a, a certain tree and to eat from other trees. He gave man the ability to choose the names of the animals, to have a degree of autonomy where he is not controlled by God, where God speaks to him, tells him what he wants, but the man or the woman must decide. And that is your will where you decide. And the sad fact is that many Christians today have thrown out the idea of their will. We have said before that your soul, your spirit is that part of you in the middle that relates to God, that gets born again by God. But your soul is your mind, your will and your emotions. And that needs to be renewed for you to be a complete Christian. We've spoken about your emotions being renewed when we spoke about virtue. He says, for this reason, add to your faith virtue. And we said that virtue is that desire to do good, which comes from deep within where you just want what God wants. And we spoke about how to get your emotions changed by delighting yourself in God, by looking at him, how good he is and what he's done and your emotions and your desires change. Your mind is knowledge. We spoke about that. He says, add to virtue knowledge where you've renewed your mind and you've started thinking like God and understanding how God thinks. But now your will is this next one where he says self-control and your will is the thing that decides. God has given human beings the ability to decide. In the Old Testament, he says several times to the Israelites, choose, choose who you will serve. Will you serve God or will you serve idols? I've set before you life and death. Choose life. He says, choose, choose, choose. Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, how many times I wanted to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You chose a different route. God allows humans to choose. Now, I know for some of you listening to me, about 33% of Christians, a recent poll was done to try and work out where Christians in America stand on this thing of whether we have free will or whether God controls us. And about 33% are uh, extreme reformed Christians, which basically means they think God controls everything and humans don't really have any free will. Then about 33% are on the other side where they say we have freedom to choose and about 33% are in the middle who, who don't really know and think it's a mixture of both. But some of you listening to me have been taught that you don't have freedom to choose, that your will is unimportant, that God controls things, that if he wants it to happen, it'll happen. Uh, whatever will be, will be fate. God decides I don't really have any say in it. And for you, this is a shock. Because the Bible says self-control is something you must add, not God control, self-control.
in Exodus chapter 14. The Israelites are coming out of Egypt. They're faced with the Red Sea in front of them and the Egyptian army behind them. They're crying out to Moses. Moses says, don't worry. God will do it. God will fight for you. You don't have to do anything. And immediately God says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? You do something. Because sometimes we think it's God where actually God says, I give you the power. I want you to change your emotions and your mind, but then exercise your own will and get involved in some decision making. You remember the story about the man who was uh, demonized. Jesus came across him in a region called Gadara. In Luke chapter 8 verse 26, it says Jesus met this man. He lived naked. He lived in the tombs in the cemetery area outside of society. He would cut himself. He was like a wild animal. And when Jesus spoke to the demonic forces in this man, they said, we are legion because we are many. He was overcome with demons. And yet he was able, using his own will, please just realize the importance of this today. This man was so overcome with demons that he couldn't function in society. He was considered completely mentally incapacitated. He couldn't even wear clothes. He, he would damage himself. He was an outcast and uh, in a terribly depraved state. And yet he could, of his own will, come and kneel before Jesus when Jesus landed on the shore. Because the human will is a powerful, powerful thing, my friend. And the only person who wants to reduce your willpower, the only person who wants you to not be self-controlled, the only person who wants to trick you into thinking you must give away control, you must be passive, you must say, whatever happens, happens. I'll just go with the flow. I won't make decisions. I won't exercise my will. The only person who wants to minimize your will is the devil. There's a poem that I heard many years ago by a man called William Ernest Henley, which describes the power of the human will. This man was not writing from a Christian perspective, he was just describing how humans understand the power of their will. And he says, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. And then the last verse says, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And I want to say to you, dear friend, that you must understand that self-control, the power of your human will, is a God-given thing that should be developed but it must be developed for God and through God and with God. We must never fall into the mistake of thinking my will must be lessened. But we must also never fall into the mistake of thinking that I can save myself through my own good efforts. And so I want to spend 
just a few moments trying to help us to navigate this and work out how do we have self-control with God's help, with God's power, not in our own strength, but adding self-control so that we can become complete Christians. Friend, I want to give you a picture of how you could be as a believer, where you are filled with faith, you believe what Jesus did for you, and all this provision that he's put inside of you for life and godliness. You have virtue where you start to want what God wants. You have knowledge where you've renewed your mind and your thinking, and you're starting to understand thinking like God wants you to think. But then you have self-control where your willpower is strengthened for God, with God's strength, uh, with the right motives, with the right end goal in mind, not out of pride, not out of trying to earn God's forgiveness, but you have a strong will. And when you have that, friend, you are a powerful Christian. You know, the strongest Christians are not those who have no willpower, but the ones who have willpower, who don't allow themselves to be blown around by circumstances. Paul the Apostle is an amazing example of this. He had a commission from God. God had said to him, go and preach to the Gentiles, spread my word, make disciples of all nations. He knew what he was supposed to do. And he went and did it in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 9. He says, a great and effective door has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. Now, most of us, if we are... Uh, confused about self-control and willpower. We think when a great and effective door is open, there will be no adversaries, there will be no opposition. But Paul understood that there is a place for saying, God has provided an opportunity for, for me to preach. And even though people are whipping me, I've been thrown to the wild animals. I've nearly lost my life. There is great opposition. They want to put me in prison. They are persecuting me. They are talking badly about me. My life is at threat. I may be stoned or whipped. Even though there is negative opposition coming, my willpower is so strong that I will keep going. And I want to encourage you. In Acts chapter 20, Paul says that the Holy Spirit has told him to go to Jerusalem and warned him there will be opposition and difficulties in every city on the way there. And then in Acts 21, let me just read it to you because it's such an extraordinary story. In Acts 21, Paul is traveling with his companions. Verse 8, it says, On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Philip was a hero of the Christian church. Verse 9 says, Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied, so he had some prophetic daughters in his household, and they were staying with Philip the Great and the four daughters. And verse 10 says, And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Agabus was the main prophet of the church. So there's Paul, there's Luke, there's Timothy, there's the greats who wrote the Bible and who we read about in the Bible. Then there's Philip, his four virgin daughters who prophesy, and Agabus the prophet. This is the heavyweights, the powerful Christians of the world are all staying together in one house. And in verse 11, Agabus, it says, when he had come down, he took Peter's belt, bound his hands and feet and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Agabus prophesies to Paul and says, you're gonna be bound up as you're, as you're going to Jerusalem and they're gonna take you prisoner. 
Verse 12, now listen to this, please. It says, Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul is having emotional pressure put on him, and there's a prophetic word that seems to say he shouldn't go to Jerusalem. But he knows what God has told him to do. Is he swayed? Is he swayed by emotion, by peer pressure, by his own feelings of fear? Listen to what he says. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, The will of the Lord be done. Paul understood willpower, self-control. There is a place to say, God, I know your will. I've dedicated my life to you. I know what your word says. I know what you want. And it doesn't matter what my feelings say. It doesn't matter what other people say. It doesn't matter what comes against me in circumstances. I am moving ahead and I will serve you. And that comes by developing your will. The same Paul in Romans chapter 7 describes when he tried to use his own willpower to be good and to get close to God. I don't know if you know the chapter. I'll just read you a few of the verses from Romans 7. He says, For what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do that I do not practice, but what I hate that I do. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul said when he tried willpower alone by obeying outside laws, he starts chapter 7 by talking about how the law just provoked more and more sin within him. When he tried to obey rules from the outside without gaining virtue and knowledge first, without allowing the Holy Spirit's power, when he tried in his own fleshly strength, to exercise willpower, self-control, he failed because he kept on falling. And I want to say to you, the way that you know that you are using self-control for the wrong purposes, where you're trying to earn God's favor, where you're relying on your own strength for self-control, instead of the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control, Galatians 5.23 says, the way you know that you're using self-control in your own strength is you have the same experience that Paul had, where you flip between pride and despair. One day you're proud because you feel you've obeyed God's laws and you've done well and you're full of self-importance and you think you're great and then you fall and you're in absolute despair. But Paul goes on in the very next verses, chapter 8, to explain the solution to this. He says, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, God has already forgiven you. He already loves you. You're not being self-controlled to please God or to earn his forgiveness. That's the first step. We do it out of a motive of I'm already forgiven and I love God, not I'm trying to be good. 
The second thing he says is, verse 2, The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. He said, there's this thing in my flesh that makes me want to sin, but there's a greater, more powerful, overcoming law called the law of the spirit of life. There's everything that pertains to life and godliness is in you. And when you get changed from the inside out, you see virtue, you see knowledge, you allow God's power to fill you. You're coming from the inside out, from the right direction, instead of trying to please God from outside rules in. You're saying, God has put this in me and I'm going to allow him to change me. The direction is right. So the motive is right. The direction is right. And then he says, verse 3, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. The law could never make me good. I could try and try, but I kept failing because my flesh is weak. But God made a way from the inside for me to be self-controlled and to obey him. But I'm not trying to earn something. I'm coming out of a place of rest and love and strength and acceptance. And then he says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We can get to a place where we are self-controlled, where the will is submitted to God, but I am still choosing to do what God wants out of the right motives, by the power of the Spirit, as a, a secondary thing to faith, virtue, knowledge, then self-control, then it, it results in me obeying the laws, the righteous requirements that God wants me to do. And then in verse 5, he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit the things of the spirit, for to be carnally minded is death, to be spiritually minded is peace. He says we set our minds on what God has already put in our spirits and, and that decides whether we're living to try and obey a set of rules from our own strength or with God's strength. I want to just give you a few quick pointers. Number one, get the priorities right. Realize you're loved, you're accepted, you're forgiven, you have everything from God in you and he loves you and he's not waiting to condemn you every time you fall. Then you look at God and you let the virtue flow in you. You worship him. In the Psalms it says, let us worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That means you worship his holiness and it makes you want to be holy. You renew your mind. Uh, Romans 12 2 says you transform by the renewing of your mind. Then you prove what God's will is. You start to live it out. So you get your heart, your mind, your understanding in the right position. And then you start to exercise self-control to build your willpower. Not to look at a negative sin that you want to overcome, but rather say, God, I want to strengthen my will. And this means doing things like saying, God, I'm going to fast for a day or two days or whatever it is. I'm going to go on a prayer exercise where I walk and I pray for two hours. God, I'm going to do something not to earn your favor, but to build my willpower. And when you start doing that, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, when you fast, do this, this, and this. He didn't say if you fast. We are supposed to be fasting, praying. Jesus said to his disciples, could you not pray with me for an hour? Do things that require you to build your willpower, where you make a decision with God's spirit, with God's power. And if you fall, 
Proverbs says, a righteous man falls seven times, but he gets up again. If you fall, say there's no condemnation. I'm, I'm loved, I'm accepted, but I'm working towards the rungs of this ladder to be a complete Christian. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us everything, everything we need for life and godliness. Thank you that you put it in us. Thank you that you give us virtue and knowledge and faith. And Lord, now out of this position of love and acceptance, we want to start to strengthen our self-control and become Christians who can say no and who can control our emotions, our desires, and we're not swayed by circumstances or other people. Jesus, help me this week to grow my self-control, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening. Please visit leadinglightsnetwork.com for more resources and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please consider supporting this ministry by making a donation on the giving page at leadinglightsnetwork.com or lighthousejersey.com.